welcome to Surviving Society, a political podcast from a sociological perspective. Today, I'd like to introduce our special guest, Dom Jackson-Cole. Dom has worked in higher education for over 10 years. His career in widening participation and broader equality and diversity work includes practitioner, academic and policymaker experiences. Before taking on his current role as a quality and diversity officer at SOAS University of London, Don was part of the team at Kingston University working to close the ethnicity attainment gap, work in which Kingston are the leader in the sector. He's also completing his PhD exploring the issues of racism in postgrad education in England. He'll draw on this research for today's presentation. Dom also runs a consultancy delivering training at various universities across the country with an expertise in unconscious bias, questions of race, gender identity, and wider equality and diversity matters. And he mentioned to me that he'd be very willing to be booked by Royal Holloway if anyone <laughs> wants any training. <laughs> okay, thank okay. you. Yeah. All right. Hi, everyone. This presentation is, as uh, Saskia said, Part of my PhD, obviously, it's much uh, bigger than, than this. I've just chosen some things to, as Saskia said, show in which ways racism works in the society currently in education and postgraduate education. Because they can be a whole range of ways from very, very subtle, very insidious to very uh, extreme ways. So what I'd like to talk about is uh, give you a background about the con uh, conceptual framework as well as uh, research design. You talk about two cases, uh, the interest convergence uh, or a case of international students and about prospectuses, so some of the things that I've researched. Okay, talking about conceptual framework, who here knows critical race theory, has used critical race theory? Anyone? One and a half, two, three, okay, not that many. Cool, so I'll, I'll briefly explain what critical race theory is. Basically, um, it stems from the US, uh, from crit critical uh, legal studies, um, and concentrates specifically on race, as you can imagine. The basic tenet of it is that racism is endemic. It is in every single situation. It's not just your direct, abhorrent, racism, but it is systemic, it is deeply ingrained, it is institutional, and stuff like uh, negative outcomes, uh, worse outcomes for students of colour in education, but it can be a way in which racism uh, manifests itself. There are certain concepts in critical race theory uh, that are being widely used. One of them is whiteness, and by whiteness we don't mean the colour per se, but I define it as a kind of a op oppressive social, social structure. Uh, which is recognizing, validating, and centering white cultures, bodies, and experiences at the expense of those of people of color. And as I gave an example here, uh, which is top 100 hottest men in the world, that's a perfect example of whiteness. If you look at any, just you know, Google now any uh, ranking of hottest uh, men in the world, what you find is that they're white maybe some Latino, one or two black people, maybe if you're super lucky, people racialized as Asian, right? Whereas actually uh, people that are racialized as, as white are not a majority in this world. They're, they're a minority compared to, to everyone else. But this is how whiteness, for example, uh, portrays itself. Another uh, example I showed here is uh, plasters that you buy and they're like natural body color whose body color, because they won't be very invisible on my body, they might be much more visible on uh, Shantan's body, 
right? So very insidious, very tiny ways of how we think what fits for us as white people should fit everyone is the norm. And one of the tools that critical race theory uses is interest convergence. It means that any progress that is done for race equality is only done as a kind of a last resort. And it has to have some kind of beneficial element for the white majority. And a big example here uh, from critical race theories from the US is uh, the civil rights movement of the 1960s. One of the reasons why they have been successful is because the US had to uphold this image of, of being the uh, beacon of democracy against USSR, which was this oppressive communist uh, regime. But it couldn't do that unless it had issues domestically with, with their uh, black population. So that was one of the, the reasons why white people say like, okay, we'll give you some of those uh, freedoms that you want because it will benefit us. Obviously that wasn't said so openly, but that's what it came, what it came to. So I am now writing up my PhD and I've collected loads of data. There, there was much, much more that I've collected, but I will just talk mostly about the qualitative uh, data from this research, which comes from five research intensive universities in the UK, in England, three in London, two outside of London. And I did interviews with black and Asian, British black and Asian students. Uh, I wasn't interested in, in international students who were studying postgraduate courses, mostly PhDs. Uh, majority of them were doing PhDs and they were two master's students. And then I did follow up interviews with them. I also interviewed staff who have some kind of responsibility for PhD, uh, PhD and postgraduate students. So admissions, tutors, just tutors, deans, heads of departments. And what I also did was I analyzed their marketing materials uh, and in particular prospectuses to see how they portray themselves um, from what they believe to be the best side. So uh, I'd like to talk about the in uh, international students versus home students. It's a case of uh, interest convergence. Um, this is a, a quote from, uh, the names here are fictional, uh, Lupe, he was a head of department at what I call University of Labor. And he says, international students pay for themselves, but particularly those coming from Far East, India and Pakistan or Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, they come even less prepared to do research, to know what it is to do research. Uh, and so with that, there's uh, where we find the difference in terms of where the best students are coming from. So he's signaling here that they consider some students as less prepared to do research. A lot of people were also talking about less pre prepared in terms of their language, so having uh, poor lang linguistic skills. The, the, the next quote is from Fred, a head, a head of graduate uh, school at the University of Books. Also talks about, uh, the question here was, why don't you have more home BME students, BME black and minority ethnic students? And the Fred's answer was, I think the university would lo really love to have more of those students, meaning home um, black and minority ethnic, but once you've built the market for your product, you get uh, mostly applications from them, meaning international students, and they probably overcrowd the applications from outside. Suggesting here that international students take precedent over uh, home students taking the space of home students, okay? So what does that actually mean? So it is a case of interest convergence because the university gets money from it. Higher income from international students, great, right? 
what they do actually, they are lowering the admissions threshold for international students. They admitted very candidly, they're not as prepared academically, they're not as prepared linguistically. Uh, I also have, did include here, but another quote, which said that they, they knew they were taking uh, less able students, but they were putting more effort into them, and that created actually very good PhDs who became uh, really good uh, researchers uh, in their fields and went back to work in universities in their country, so on. So they know that they can take someone who they don't consider to be ready, but they wouldn't be uh, um, ready or prepared to do that for home BME students, if they had to. So yeah, so the result of it is, as, uh, as Fred said, there's less room for home BME students, okay? So we are lowering the bar for uh, international students, not lowering the bar for home students. Nonetheless, the discourse of dumbing down persists. So they were, uh, we were talking a lot about widening participation. And some of the things we're saying, we cannot jeopardize our quality for widening participation. But actually you are doing that, but not for money, you're doing, uh, but you're doing this for money, right? For international students. So there's not that much meritocracy, really. We only talk about meritocracy here. What it does also, having uh, students of color, even though they are international students, it helps academic stuff and other stuff to deflect accusation of personal racism. We're not racist because we let them in, so it's all good. Furthermore, as I said, those negative stereotypes, they are not only just impacting uh, international students, they are also potentially impacting home students. Why? Because the staff were always confusing home and international students. I heard on multiple occasions, you'll have no issues uh, getting uh, those uh, black and Asian students from home backgrounds. We have 48% of our students are BME at postgraduate level. It says that on their website, but it also says it includes international students. And in reality, only 5% of postgraduate uh, students were from home BME backgrounds. Okay, so if they're confusing home and international and have a negative views of international students, that will translate. It also means that uh, staff, consciously or not, are equating Britishness with white. Being white, having a, an accent, obviously not mine. Obviously, I'm not British enough. Even though I do have a passport, you can't kick me out. Um, <laughs> right. There's a, there's a big uh, consequence here. Also what it helps is, there's a shallow, to do is uh, um, engage with diversity in a very shallow way. We're, we have loads of BME students, we don't have a problem. Because you're looking at international as every, everything all together, right? We don't have an issue, it's us and them, there, there's so much of them. We don't have to look into those issues. At a different university someone said, uh, postgraduate admissions uh, manager, she said, there is no issue. We, we sorted out the issue at undergraduate level. We have Afina Swan, we have this and that and that. It's on our HR paper. So we don't have an issue, we don't have to look at postgraduate issue. So that's kind of how interest convergence works. It helps the university. It brings in uh, the students who look diverse, helps university to look diverse, gives money, but actually doesn't really help. Uh, all the all the uh, black and brown faces. Another uh, another thing is about whiteness, and I call this publishing whiteness, and it's the analysis of postgraduate prospectuses. So prospectuses have been used as an important tool 
for students' decision making. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of research on how important prospectuses are in students' decision making. University marketing teams creating those publications, they try to portray the university from the best side, right? From the best perspective. Um, they portray their achievements, their culture, how it is to be a student here and so on. Uh, but I argue this is the best perspective only for a very tiny, narrowly defined uh, section, which is, which is going to be the white section of, of students. So I took the analysis of the five research intensive universities, which was a visual and uh, textual analysis. Um, so, what did I find in those prospectuses? There was absolutely no textual engagement with issues of race, ethnicity, diversity, unless we were talking about, there's a sociology course that we provide, and there we talk about ethnicity and race. But outside of the description of courses, there was no engagement with that. No word race, ethnicity did not exist. The only, uh, the only reference was in one city saying it's a diverse city. And it wasn't even London that said that. Okay? As you can imagine uh, from the visual side, the pictures, the, the photographs of students and, and people of color uh, were not very well represented. So, so there was this issue that if you looked at how the pictures were spread, the photographs were spread, they concentrated in the areas of mostly two areas, student support and extracurricular activities. So what does it say? It says students of color, there's more pictures of students of color in the sections of support. That means subconsciously sending message, students of color need more support. And actually, it kind of is true when you look at uh, what students complain, and, and I also did a um, survey part of my research also looked at what students do complain about if they feel disadvantaged by their education and white students were much more likely to complain about what I call extra stuff like quality of course, course organization, quality of information advice and guidance, whereas uh, black and Asian students were much more likely to complain about the basics like the course is not designed for someone with a job, the, the course is not designed for someone who who's a carer, the course is not designed, basically not designed for them in mind, right? So, but, but that kind of portrays again the, the stereotypes that uh, students of color need some help. Um, and that they are extracurricular, they're not at the core of our activities, they are at sports, cultural events, hip-hop bars and Diwali celebrations, but they're not, not the ones that we're showing as alumni, for example. And in other descriptions, whiteness of experiences was also foregrounded. So one university was really praising its uh, architecture, which was very colonial architecture, even though they are very famous for very modern look to their city, okay? Which, which probably comes from a lot of people of color, but they didn't, uh, didn't, didn't put that forward. Um, they, for example, as well, uh, were saying, our chaplaincy is for everyone, but our Christians Christian societies are really well based here. So they were singling out Christian uh, as, as opposed to, for example, Muslim, uh, and so kind of othering the Muslim from, from that space. On the topic of pictures again, there was a very clear over-representation of uh, uh, black and Asian students or uh, pictures with people who were identified as students. 
versus their actual data. So this uh, second column is the actual data from, their from the quality reports of universities. The first column is uh, percentages in um, the prospectuses. And what you can see, there's always over-representation of uh, black and minority ethnic uh, students in the prospectuses. On one hand, you can say, yeah, it's good, uh, we want to attract them, so let, let's bring them in, right? But as I said, it was very problematic how we were portraying them. Um, but there's very, very, very little of staff of color being presented at all, single or none, or there was only one university that had four people of color who were staff. And when you had, so overall in five, in five prospectuses, you had seven staff of color portrayed. Out of those seven, four were with other white people in the picture. And in three out of those four, it looked like it was the white person explaining something uh, to the person of color. Okay? So you can see that it automatically positions uh, students, the discourse positions uh, the uh, black and minority ethnic people on at the university uh, as knowledge receivers, not producers. Right? We, we're okay with them being students, not so much with them being staff members and producing the knowledge. Another example was whiteness of research uh, case studies. So they're research intensive universities, very happy to talk about their research profiles. Um, and there was an example of uh, history research, which was talking a lot about white kings and other war heroes who are doing, uh, who are going out of Europe and, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and, and stuff like that. Um, subtly building an image of white savior, meaning, well, those other countries, they need kind of support from white people. Um, that's why we're interesting, interested in that. The only example that was uh, very explicitly linked to people of color was about indigenous tribes of Africa. And it was kind of a very romanticized uh, colonial view of them. They were helping us see what societies used to look like before uh, civilization. That was the words that they were using. Um, and there was one university that had a whole map of their research around the world uh, saying how global their research was. But when they were talking about research with uh, Global North, they were using words like, uh, we're sharing knowledge, we're in partnership, we're, we're taking part in advanced uh, STEM subject uh, studies with Australia, with Canada, and so on. Whereas when it was research with the Global South, you know, in Africa, in Africa, for example, they were uh, supporting the development of their school system. Or in Asia, they were improving their nutrition, improving quality of life, basically helping again, right? The Global South, we need to help them. Whereas Global North, we are, we are equal partners. So in that way, it was very, um, it was neo-colonial and also uh, spreading that whiteness of research around the world. And because I am talking here and it's super, super hot, I think maybe you can open the windows. I don't know, I can be quite boring with my voice. Just to conclude, critical race theory, I think it's quite a good tool to deconstructing racism in education. And as I argue, meritocracy uh, is whiteness. So people say, um, Paul Miller at his conference at a conference uh, in September uh, last month said that meritocracy, so merit-based system apparently, 
uh, gives way to whiteness. But I would argue that meritocracy is whiteness because it is only used kind of against people of color. You can only succeed if you've got those merits. But we will give others uh, much more benefit of doubt. So yeah, so this perspe the prospectuses are actually showing what the university has to offer, but from a very white perspective. So they, they, they look work well for the white leader or someone who's not very uh, aware of, ra of racial discourses. And that would be my presentation. Thank you for not falling asleep completely. <laughs> Now I'm really pleased to introduce Mike, one of my co-podcasters, Chantal Lewis. Uh, Chantal is a part-time PhD researcher at Goldsmiths College, looking at the ways in which mixed-race families in a predominantly white West Midlands town manage and negotiate racialization and racism. She's a researcher on the Brexit Brits Abroad ESRC project, where she's interviewed over 30 UK citizens of colour who live within the EU27 during the Brexit process. And she's the editorial manager of the Journal of Sociological Review. And at the moment, she's been doing a lot of work with Leading Roots, which she's a program director. And it's a charity aimed at supporting, informing, and empowering the next generation of black academics. Um, yeah, and she also has got this really cool campaign called Black in Academia. And there are some videos online under the Leading Roots Twitter uh, page. So yeah, you should check them out. Uh, over to you. Hello, everyone. It's weird being in a PhD environment like this. I haven't been in one like this for a while. Um, I tend to not put myself in PhDs in PhD environments as much as I used to because I find it sometimes quite uncomfortable because no one looks like me. And that is basically the landscape of academia right now and has been for a long time. So, yeah, forgive me if I stutter a little bit. I'll try my best to be as confident as possible. Um, yes, yeah, so I'll tell you a little bit about me. So I'm a little bit of an accidental academic um, in the sense that I guess what Don was actually just talking about, that I've constantly been at the hurdles of... Um, meritocracy and meritocracy as, as whiteness, that being that I've not often been able to achieve the merits that um, academia sets in place in order to progress. So I am from the West Midlands, from a town um, called Bromsgrove. I'm from a working class family in the sense of um, economics, but also culturally, meaning that um, I'm the first in my family to go to university. I did my undergraduate in sociology at Loughborough University and I did my masters around the corner actually at Birkbeck um, in culture, ethnicity and diaspora and having failed on numerous occasions to get PhD funding, um, I'm a self-funded PhD at Goldsmiths. Um, I um, failed to get funding for a few reasons. Um, first of all, because I didn't really know anything about academia and the sort of soft skills that you needed in order to, for example, be even considered for a funding place. Um, those things being like, there's particular master's programs that it's good for you to do, um, that being sort of social research masters, like uh, funding bodies look at you a lot 
more amicably if you've got a master's in social research. I didn't have that. I had an MA. I didn't get a first in my in any of my degrees. Um, I've always sort of been, I've always had the passion, but never been able to express myself in the way that academia requires you to do so, um, which means it's, it's, been, it's been difficult to fund stuff, basically. I think that what I represent is an example of academia's inability to understand the relationship um, between race and class and how that um, interacts within, within study, basically, and who gets to be in spaces like this, who gets to be a PhD, who gets to be an academic, who gets to be a professor. Um, and that differentiation between race and class means that and it's really it's actually quite good following on from dom in this sense so we have uh, international students will sometimes get seen as the same type of students as me because we have a similar skin color yet when it comes to class they might have a lot more cultural social and economic capital but we'll still be grouped in the same sort of cohort which means that there is a lack of understanding of the class needs of people that are racialised within academia. So I would say that I'm, fir I'm, I'm first a black woman because that's how I get, get recognised in the immediacy, but I'm also working class black woman, which makes it very difficult to navigate these spaces. The problem with what we have at the moment is, and it's something which I've been working on with um, someone who's set up a charity called Leading Roots, um, Paulette Williams, she's a good friend of mine, and she's an activist and she also works at UCL. Um, and the problem that we have identified is the numbers and representation. And I mean, it's not just us that's, that's recognised this. It's, you can see it, like you can see it in this room. Like there are not enough black PhDs. There are not enough BAME PhDs. And for that reason, we don't see ourselves, um, we don't see ourselves being taught. We don't see ourselves at professor, professor level. We don't see ourselves at research level. And for that reason, we know that um, black, and, black Asian minority ethnic students aren't going successfully being able to get through the postgraduate process and be able to do a PhD. Now, I take Dom's points and I agree with them that it is the institutions that are racist, like higher education is racist, but what we have to do is empower those that get racialized and empower them and inform them of how you can work this system because this system is not set up for us, it isn't. And the way that we can go about that, what me and Paulette are talking about now, is by informing BAME students earlier on in their um, academic career that it is possible for them to be sat in this room with us but you need to follow these steps in order to do that. Um, now the problem with that is it sort of it, it frames a sort of narrative around what I have a, what I like to talk about um, is sort of David Cameron's big society thing that like we're, we're empowering our community to do it themselves like that's that's what it comes down to at this stage but we all I mean well Paulette actually says this it's about in the meantime. So the government isn't going to make any changes. Money is being stripped away from higher education like no one's business. So it's only going to get worse. So what we are saying now and what our Black in Academia programme is looking to do is to tell undergraduate um, BAME students, well, in our case, it's black students, that 
this career is possible for them and these are things that you've got to do and creating spaces that are just for black students to show them this and if we can prepare black students at an earlier stage then perhaps out of the 19,000 professors in the UK it won't just be less than 100 that are black. I think one of the reasons why as well as funding as well as a lack of accountability um, is when you talk about these things people often get their guard up and they're like well what do you want me to do I'm not responsible I'm not responsible and that in itself distracts from the issue at hand so it also distracts from us getting any sort of progressive conversations happening so it's difficult, I mean, and this is, again, why I don't tend to put myself in these situations anymore, because people are often saying, well, I'm not going to give up my place as a PhD, so what can I do? But it isn't, it isn't about that, it isn't about the individual, it isn't about me saying that your place needs to be taken by a person of colour. It's about you recognising that there are some things that have happened in your life which means that you are much more likely to be here than a person of colour. So it's recognising that and then talking openly about the lack of diversity within the institution. It has to be as well, the institutions are the problem, they are the things that have to change, but they can't change unless the people change the narrative. I, this is what I believe anyway. I think I'm, I'm optimistic, but only because I'm seeing a lot of black academics and black students doing stuff um, proactively to talk about their experiences and empower the next generation. I'm less optimistic about the institutions themselves and the money available. Until we get a change in government, a change in policy, then I can't see this situation getting any better. Um, so yeah, I don't have anything else to say. <laughs> I've, done my, I've done my speech so yeah I'll ask the questions after <laughs> lastly I'm really pleased to introduce to you uh, Tiso Regis who is our last co-podcaster for Spine Society um, he's also a PhD researcher uh, working on uh, why anxieties in the east end of London and as well as uh, working with kids at a charity called Reach Out. He's a speaker for the Stephen Lawrence Foundation and he collects sneakers. So if any of you are really into that, come talk to him afterwards. <laughs> I suppose, I'm not an expert in this, but I'm going to tell you about my experience and how, kind of, how it kind of links to my kind of research at the moment. So my kind of research is white anxiety in Eastern London in, the, in this post-Brexit environment. So as you can imagine, it seems like white people are going mental at the moment. Oh, too many foreigners pull up the drawbridges and all this kind of stuff. Um, but my experience as a, well, a young black East Londoner is that my educational career has been one of absence. So when I go into any room, I'm always a minority. When I learn about anything, I don't really learn about any kind of <coughs> anything about black people, it's like I'm always separate, like Black History Month, but why is it separate? It's your history too. But this, is, this has been my experience, I'm always separate. When I walk into a room, when I, even when I got a job, when I worked in the city, I'm always separate. There's a, there's a diversity panel, you can go in a diversity panel. I'm always separate. But that's, that shouldn't how it's always been. You always tell me to assimilate, but you're making me separate. And in this post-Brexit environment, this has always been the kind of thing that people talk about, this separateness. But that's not how it isn't, how, it, how it's not, 
that's how it should be. We're always trying to be, we're aiming for a more kind of holistic kind of education. So in this Black History Month, what I've been shocked at is how little English people know about their own history, which is shocking, really. I, one of my friends told me, speaking to him the other day, and I asked him, I said, tell me anything you know about English history apart from World War I and II. He told me, I think it was the World Cup in 1966. <laughs> that's, that's pretty bad. <laughs> that's pretty bad. And like I said, I'm trying to get to a point where, at the moment, I feel very pessimistic, given the stuff that I read, the people I talk to. They have very kind of depressing views. They want everything to be separate again. And that's not really going to work out. So in education, we need to have a more kind of holistic approach. So I don't really... So at the moment, people seem to be shocked that Churchill was a racist. Why are you shocked? Or Kant was a racist. Why are you I love Kant, by the way. But why, why are people shocked at this? But no one's taught this at school. No one's taught this at university. I'm taught, to, taught about how... David Hume, empiricism, and all this kind of stuff, but I'm not told about the person in, in his totality. And that doesn't, distract, that doesn't detract anything from him, but it gives me a better understanding of who this person was. And it frames it. So at university, we're all about contextualization, the context of it. But I'm taught decontextualized stuff. I'm taught these people at their best, not at their worst. So um, what was I talking to the kind of a guy about? So I, I was talking to another guy about the kind of how the English, uh, sorry, the British Empire concentrated concentration camps and why this was done. And it's, I don't know, a bit of removing a whole nation because they're fighting, not black people, they're fighting other white people, Dutch people. And the idea to remove a whole nation, and this, one of my friends was shocked at this. I'm saying, but why are you shocked? But this is what's lacking in the kind of education space. It's about teaching people in their totality and then we won't be shocked at these things. So. All this kind of talk about people tearing out statues and getting really upset, I, I understand that, but I, I think we'd be a better place if we were taught in a, this kind of holistic way. <clears throat> so, my, like I said, my experience has been one of absence. So, when I learn about 1066 or whatever it is, it, it all seems very great and grand, but when I talk about slavery, people seem to shy away from it, it almost feel a bit kind of embarrassed about it. But my kind of attitude is slavery is just as important and just as vital to the uh, British narrative as the Industrial Revolution, as the Enlightenment, but that's not how it's seen. And that's the problem here. So when people look at me, like, I don't know how people look at me really, another black tooth in the finger, I don't, I don't know, but this is, this is what I get really upset about. The kind of narrative, it's always about, it's a separateness to it, when it's part of the story. So one of my big things is when I, go to, obviously I'm from East End, I love the East End, so when I go to West India Quay, West India Quay was built for slavery, but not many people know that, it's just a place where people hang around, close to Canary Wharf, but this is all part of our story, our narrative, and <clears throat> we need to get away from this idea of separateness, because separateness is, for me, is a form of whiteness. I try my best, I try my best to fit in, but people always still have, like, like this room, it's quite interesting, when I worked in the city, I would say to my colleagues, if this room was full of black people, how would you feel? Most of them would feel super uncomfortable. And this is how I feel sometimes. I walk into a room and people have lots of preconceptions. So it kind of ties into what, what Don was saying, like these, it's, almost, it's weird how these conceptions are linked to kind of like 
like colonial conceptions about black people, about how they are, they're aggressive, sometimes my hand movements. And it's weird, it's, it's so weird. I've seen people react that way. So I've been to lots of talks and talked to lots, lots of like, professors or they, they almost seem to be very uncomfortable with me being in a room. And that makes me feel funny. So I'm trying to say to people like, this is not how it should be. Like, especially with academics, we know better. Well, we think we know better. So I guess my point is, like, we need to kind of move away from this kind of idea of being so separate in our approach to education and what's on the syllabus, just to be a bit more, I don't know, a bit more comprehensive. And that's what we are meant to be in academics, really. That's it, really. I haven't got not much else to say, really. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Questions for the panel. Is racism in higher education discipline-specific, or is it something that kind of yeah. cuts oh, across? Specific yeah, yeah, okay. I would say no, because, I mean, this is, a, this is another thing about understanding the soft skills of academia. As a sociologist, one of the things that would have been really great for me to know is that I could have it would have possibly been beneficial for me to do a master's in a, in a subject which crosses along ge geographical lines, and then I might have got funding. Do you know what I mean? So I feel like in social sciences, there's, like, there's ways of understanding the system that certain people are more likely to... Get, if that makes sense, and I think you, that is less likely if you're from a BAME background. I guess that's not really answering answer your question. Um, I think, I mean, STEM obviously has a very big issue. I don't know about it as much, um, but I know there's a lot of work going into, and money, going into creating more representation. But as we see the funding being taken from the arts and social sciences and humanities, this situation is only going to get worse. And I wouldn't. I think it would be wrong to say that there's any discipline that, are, that is ahead. Um, so there are differences, but um, as a whole, every every discipline has an issue. But I would say some of the disciplines are like STEM. They are really. Uh, embedded within the positivist approach and everything is supposed to be uh, objective so we never look at the influence of uh, identity if it's a black woman who's a researcher does that make a difference to, to the research or not and it actually does and that, that came across in my research as well um, what I would say in sociology um, we might give students the voice to express what they're uh, experiencing um, which is a good thing, which uh, STEM students may not always get unless they go out of their way to, to get that voice. So, so a lot of the students who I spoke to didn't have the right uh, terminology uh, to speak about their experiences. There was one in particular who didn't know loads about critical race theory and, and she could, uh, she could uh, use that language to help her understand her experiences. Um, but in sociology, the problem is, for example, in, or in social sciences, the problem is that we think we are so socially aware, we're so woke, that it doesn't apply to us. So I'm trying to, to put on unconscious bias training, right? Because I do training. And everybody at university says, like, yes, it's super important, we need unconscious bias training. But not me, everyone else. Right? Nobody signs up for the unconscious bias training. Because I, it's not my problem, it's their problem because I'm so woke, or so gender aware, and so on, so on, so on. So, so there's issues on both sides, on all sides, really. 
Um, I don't know, from my experiences, I just think it's, doesn't matter, all my friends, there would be a kind of, you'd see a kind of wall of whiteness. I'd feel that's in any department. So some of my friends done maths, but they tend to be African guys that would do maths, and they seem all right, but any West Indian guys wouldn't go. So this is, this is, this is how it is. I would say from the, from the, from the ground, it makes no difference. It just is very white across the board. There was an article written about how to uh, uphold uh, whiteness in academia by Dr. Miguel de la Torre. And he said that one of the ways that universities uphold whiteness is by appointing faculty of color with the darkest faces and whitest words or whitest mouths. Right? So they look like the face of diversity, but they will keep on reproducing the whiteness of the research. They will only put on white uh, authors on the reading list. They will only research things that, uh, that benefit mostly white people. So, yeah. uh, just to add to that, that makes me think of um, that's what Priyam Verda says about Cambridge. So Priyam Verda Gopal was like re-attacked uh, online and in the media um, for saying that Cambridge had problems with racism, which is pretty obvious. And so Cambridge trusts out a black guy to be like, it's not racist. And it's like this kind of, you know, we found, we found someone. <laughs> so it's okay. Um, so the first question was, should we be trying to reappropriate universities' kind of use of tokenism as a way of selling university? Or should you be rejecting it? So, for example, using Monroe Bergdorf as a way of like shifting university places, if they ever were to do that. Um, and the second question is how? Yeah. So, like, how would you build uh, solidarity across kind of like different uh, levels of university? Keeps like all the people who keep universities running. Cool. I, I don't know. I find that like the second question. I find it's difficult. So, like I said, my focus is about white anxiety. What anxiety has been caused by? They feel under threat. So people at the top, I don't think they feel a solidarity with the people at the bottom. And it's difficult, especially if I'm a professor, I've got all these letters after my name, there's a prestige to that. And it's that, it's that kind of fear that keeps them from building that solidarity. So I, like I said, I spent some time in the corporate environment and it's the same kind of thing. You, at the bottom, you have, well, essentially I worked 12 years in this corporate environment, in the 12 years there, there's only two black guys. All the other black guys were cleaners or security guards. People at the top, obviously white men. And it's, how do you break this down? The institutions talk about diversity, they talk about all these things, but how do they actually do it? Like I said, the first thing they do is directing me to the diversity board, pointing at my difference again. So I find it very difficult. How do you build these bridges? First thing, is, I, first thing I tell them is to be honest about the problem. I think at the moment everyone's so scared when they hear the word racist or, or, because there's been 30, 40 years of campaign of anti-racism. So the word racist is pejorative. It's, no one likes to be called that anymore. But it's something that we need to talk about and be honest about. And I think once you start being honest, then we can start building those solidarities. But until then, until then, like I said, at the moment, for my research, it seems that the people at the bottom, that we've been studied, poked and prodded, Everyone knows about blackness and black working class and all this, but no one's actually said, hey, white people, what about you? And that's the question. 
to, to study yourself, to feel uncomfortable. So that's why in this moment, at the moment, in this post-Brexit moment, when people saw like the Me Too movement, why many feel uncomfortable, because I have to ask for the first time, first time question my own behaviour. Now, in this moment, people are questioning whiteness. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? It's a funny thing to be under the kind of microscope for once. But until we have that kind of conversation about your post, about the kind of colonial past and all these kind of things and how it affects people today, it will be difficult to build a society. But once we do that, we can move on. I, I know what you're saying, and I think it's a good idea in principle. Um, but at this stage, I think it's slightly utopian. In austerity Britain, where the pay, where people who work in the public sector are haven't had a pay rise in like ten years, and those that are paid on the lowest scale, like are just they're tired, like they're so tired, and with the increase in the continued privatisation of universities. I think Tito's right. I think it has to be the academics that look at themselves and it has to be predominantly those that are in power that look at how they could change things because I just don't, like, I mean, I try and do my bit on a voluntary basis, um, anti-racist-wise, but I, I'm, still like, I'm still powerless to this stuff. Those who have the power have to do more in this, in this situation, in this current climate, unless there's money unless people are being paid properly, then I, I, I think the bridge, the bridge, the building that bridge or creating that bridge has to be led by those in power. It cannot always be the people that are suffering the most that have to do it. And what your, your other question was about tokenism. Okay, so we're also at a stage where there's just, there's hardly any people of colour that are teaching us and that are academics. So, Part of me thinks it's a really difficult, difficult one because representation does matter, but it needs to be the right representation. So that needs to be taken into consideration. But it's like, I'm not saying I want some far-right black guy to be teaching me chemistry, but at the same time, like people need to see themselves in these spaces, like they do. Um, it's a problem. It's a big, big problem. So let's start with solidarity and the fear that you're talking about is very it's very common in uh, higher education one of the um, unconscious bias training sessions that I was doing I had an older white male professor uh, saying out of the blue the university just wants to get rid of me that's why they put me on this training right that kind of fear uh, that that they want to be kicked out because of diversity agenda that's not what the university wants the university wants him to change to with the time, because they probably haven't changed. Um, but and another thing that you were talking about, um, I've heard people of color on numerous occasions saying, just like Tiso was saying, uh, I'm being put on this committee and that committee. I have to be on every recruitment panel, and then you know students. I have to be on this and that and that and that. When I when are they going to do their work? When are they going to do their study? And then they're going to fail and not get the first because they weren't studying because they were on all, all panels, right? So it's not just people of color have to do the work, it is us white people have to do the work. And, uh, and it's not from, it has to be the right type of work, we can, cannot be white saviors, right? But it's also that's a, 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 a delicate balance there. But it's good to see that there are white people, a lot of white people or some people that I would racialize as white, um, sitting here and listening about this. Uh, whether it's just because there's no people of color at all, 
at, at this faculty or whether it's just because you're you happen to be interested about it uh, that's a different issue but you're listening to it so it's great that you are coming here to listen uh, about it and maybe start doing some work um, like doing things properly when it comes to pictures so no I don't want tokenism but you don't have to have tokenism all those universities that I looked at their prospectuses they all had uh, academic staff in the region of 12 to 15 percent, right? But they weren't putting them on their uh, prospectuses. So the academics of the BME? Yeah, yeah. yeah, the academics who were uh, black and Asian, BME academics around, you know, from 12 to 20 percent, they were there. And the, the quality reports say they're there. They're, not, they're just not being pulled in the right context. So yeah, students, yeah, loads of uh, BME students, overrepresent them, let's attract them. But we're not giving the same uh, uh, recognition to uh, academics of color. And it's who we recognize that does provide value, uh, this added value, if you want to, uh, to the university, to the culture, uh, to bring in students, yeah. Uh, so yeah, the question is like, should um, encouraging people of color to go to university start earlier than university? Um, so there's already like, quite a lot of really good work that does actually happen with WP on getting um, more people of colour into university and BME groups are some of the largest populations of undergraduate degrees so the problem, it, it, like we're, we're sort of there, even though schooling at the moment is very much struggling due to funding cuts but when it comes to getting people of colour into university we're, we're basically there, um, would you say Don, that's more right, than. more than there, like you're overrepresented in the university space, what is happening in that space is what needs to be focused oh. on more, so why is it that the stats, like you're, you're so overrepresented at undergraduate level, then even, and then even more overrepresented at master's level and then when it gets to PhD, drop, completely drop. I think three percent are three percent, sorry, are black PhDs in the UK, whereas you've got a proportion that are, is uh, sorry, don't you know the stats on this? Yes. Is that undergraduate level? So at an undergraduate level, you have about seven percent of black students, yeah. and then that drops to three percent for uh, research students. And yeah. drops as a gender, I imagine they're more men of color than women. Uh, that just tends to be the general, but I don't, that, I don't know. I would say that's subject specific there. Um, there's definitely a gender imbalance in STEM, not so much in social sciences actually now. Um, but yeah, the, 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 the parts that we need to address and how what the things we need to do are more at that university level now. So I get what you're saying, I do think there needs, there's always stuff you can do in schooling, particularly in state schools, if there's the money there but we can't remove the accountability of the institutions because they are reproducing this inequality. This has to be more. But I, I take your point about solidarities. I totally agree. As you rightly pointed out, um, the issue is not students going to university. Um, they are the most likely to, to go to university. Um, actually, there's another example from my uh, PhD of interest convergence is that uh, if you look at the demographics of 18 and 19 year olds right now in the UK, it's dropping. So all the universities are struggling with getting students to their undergraduate degrees. At the same time, we have the higher education white paper from 2016, which gave us a, a target of increasing the recruitment or admissions of uh, students of color by 20%. Great, great, let's congratulate ourselves, we want black and Asian students to be more in higher education. 
But what does it say? It just says, let's get them in, let's increase that, uh, their percentage by 20% all the way until 2020. That's when we want the target to be met by 2020. There's no targets for after. If you look at the demographics, the numbers are dropping until 2020 and bouncing off later after 2020. The numbers of uh, young people going to university, of, of young people in population will be growing. So we're only interested in uh, BME students when we're uh, at peril, when we don't have enough students. And that's just an entry that has nothing to do with targets for getting them the first degree or 2-1 degree. There's nothing in the white paper about that target, right? So uh, my issue is, why are we uh, going to bring students into university if we know that they're not going to have a good time here? They're already coming here, so let's do something for those who are already here. Let, let's let's tar target that whiteness of, of the institution. So that's what I would say. Because that, this is a discourse that a lot of academics that I spoke to in my research were, were using. Like, we're doing everything we can, but it's not our fault if students are not coming from, from previous universities, right? Or from school, always pushing it back to further uh, issues, but it's not. It's, it's a postgraduate research. Um, thank you very much. This is incredibly valuable and really amazing to give us time to do this, so thank you. I used to kind of role in the department of the Quality and Diversity Officer, and it's a role I feel seemed very unequipped for, very ill-equipped for, and I'm very interested to hear um, your views on, on that role and what, what it means for the kind of work that you're doing. But in particular, one of the things I struggle with is how, as someone who works in the department level, how I also negotiate those charter marks. So you know, it's a theme of swan or it's the race quality charter mark, and I've read all of the literature about how problematic those are and how the university uses as branding exercises. So I, I kind of have a lot of struggles with how to do that. So I really value your kind of input and reflections on, on the role and those kinds of charter marks and how people in my role could productively negotiate those. Sorry, it's a big question and I'm um, yeah, what advice would you give a new equality and diversity yeah. officer? Can I just ask you, who, who are you on equality and diversifying? Is it staff or is it students? It's our department, so it's staff and students. Okay. okay. I do work as equality and diversity advisor. Yeah. Um, it's very different things are uh, your commitment to equality and diversity to anti-racism, to anti-misogyny, and so on. And another thing is ticking boxes. Yeah. I just had a discussion, very, 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 this very discussion at lunch with some students at SOAS. They were asking my views about Palestine. I have really big views, <laughs> but as staff member, I cannot not put them in context, right? So yeah, so right now, we're collecting data for Afina Swan. Um, sure, that's the data. But actually, there are real issues that Afinas One will not tackle at all. Yeah. So, Afinas One is only good for the basics, I would say, and is only as good as you make it. So, I know that there are a lot of people who are very, very committed to, to things, and they will be on, on the committees for Afinas One, and they will be frustrated that they can't put everything forward because they're working towards Afinas One. But Afinas One has a charter mark that uh, promotes women in academia is needed because funding depends on it, for example, right? Is it good to have it? Is it bad? It's a, it's a, it's a balance. So um, 
I, what I used to do is, I say, well, those sort of things that I have to do for the university, but I let everyone else know that also my opinions are this and this as a private person. I need to do much more than, than just what the university thinks we're doing, right? And sometimes it, it trickles down because, for example, um, we only have to report on uh, gender pay gap as, uh, as universities. But, and the government has now launched a consultation for whether we need to report on ethnicity pay gap, which is, you know, we know we do, because we know we have a, a gap, but why do we have to consult? But SOAS have already committed to doing that, right? Because people were willing to do that. So, so we can do stuff outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would say that if you're an equality and diversity officer that you should try and be an anti-racist equality and diversity yeah. officer and what that means is by, I mean it's really difficult because we're in a moment where institutions, even though I'm being critical of them, I'm, I'm a big admirer of the university and we know that the government is doing so much to erode it so, that, so I know when I'm saying stuff to you it's, it's like almost putting more pressure on you that you already have on you. So I don't so I, I do feel bad about that. But at this particular this moment. But there are things that I think you could do as an anti-racist quality and diversity officer that would help students of colour. Like just making it obvious that there are ways to continue in research, even if it's just on a one-to-one -one basis when you're speaking to to students of colour, just actively saying, have you considered postgraduate research? And they will probably say to you, no. Like, and just having that conversation and saying, well, if you ever thought of doing that, you've done this degree, this is what I would recommend you doing as a master's, because I know that some funders like the look of this. Um, you, what, what sort of books do you like? What, what do you like studying? You know you could do a PhD on that. Just really, like, really sm like small level conversations as an academic can be absolutely life-changing for a student. I, I say that as someone who's had a couple of academics that have empowered me to carry on. If I hadn't have had those, then I probably wouldn't be here because the system's not set up for me. So yeah, just tiny little convers interactions like that is just very, very valuable. Can I add to that? Yeah. That, that point of encouragement, in my research I looked at, I asked students if they had been encouraged by their undergraduate tutor to go into postgraduate. 39%, uh, 39% of the initiatives said yes, 51% of whites said yes. So uh, we encourage much more white students to go to postgraduate than, than BME. But still BME do go. So they, they draw on other capitals that they have, on other resources that they have, to get the motivation to go, right? It might be that they, they fear that without the qualification they won't get anywhere. That might be the case as well, but yeah. I would just say that is my reality. No one spoke to me. Um, so my experience of talking to any academic has been, in all my university career, shocking. They don't really speak to you, don't really tell you anything. So I, my whole um, university experience has been through other people, speaking to my friends, and my own personal drive to do something. But no one's, no one's ever spoke to me. And when I did speak to them, they don't really want to speak back to me. So when I was looking to do a PhD, going to, I think I went to LSE, which was probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had. No one really spoke to me. People, no one actually, I think you know, I'm lying. One person sat next to me, which is a very surreal experience, worst experience I've ever had, so that's why I didn't choose to go there. But um, I would say definitely encourage me, speak, just speaking to people, because it's all about communication.
And just on that, just one more thing that you could do, like even if there's like two students that you say to them, like that are students of colour, like you can do this, follow up as well. I'm not trying. I'm not trying to put more stuff on your desk. Yeah. I know you have a lot of work on, but just, but just, just that, everybody not. Just yeah, yeah. Just follow up, like, oh, did you have a look at that? Like, what do you think? Like, oh, yeah, I can help you with that. Yeah. So, what has surprised you in your research? I started my research about maybe two years ago and it was mainly focused on white working class radicalisation. So white ones looking at brown people being radicalised, I thought my friends from the East End were, were saying some insane stuff. So what shocked me was the level of, I suppose, 19th century racism that's out there. It's shocking, shocking. You'd be surprised at some of the things that people were saying online. Um, and surprised that, I suppose, at the le not just at the level, but at the age profile of these people. So what do you mean by 19th century racism? Oh, it's, um, eugenics. Eugenics, the chain of being, so the idea that black people, black people are literally another species of people. And like I, like I said, it shocked me because I thought this had disappeared a long time ago. But these people, they're of maybe 18, 20, saying stuff that you'd think, well, that belongs in literally another century. And on top of this would be this kind of anti-Semitism that, that literally was, sh that shocked me as well. That they, one of the lines that multiculturalism is a weapon of the Jews used to bring down the white race. Absolutely insane. But this is what's currency out there. And this, is, this has been kind of mainlined into mainstream discourse. So you're hearing people say stuff about Jews that you would think, Two years ago, I would say I would say to people, and people would say that's insane. But now people say, oh, it could be the Jews. They actually they do do this. They do. They run Google. Do you know that? And they run Hollywood. Insane stuff like this. That's what I would. That's what shocked me, because I thought in 2016, 2018, this stuff had gone away. But it just seems to have festered and got not worse, a bit more kind of <clears throat> I suppose insidious, because it kind of seeps in places. And yeah, that's been my most shocking takeaway from my research. It's kind of, it's almost hypnotic because the more you look at it, the more you kind of get sucked in. So at one point I was like sitting on the, uh, I think the Daily Stormer every day. That's oh, like no. the, the, the kind of soup in it. Like, I want more stuff, I want more stuff. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I suppose it's quite, yeah, good or bad. I think the thing that shocked me about your research most is how mainstream it is now. Like how literally Tisa was talking about the far right two years ago, like how just all these theories, and now you just pick up a paper and it's there, like in the mainstream. Well, I tell you what, what surprised me about my PhD, because I feel like I'd be doing a disservice to my participants because I'm not finished yet with my interviewing. But I've been doing, with launching um, Black in Academia with Leading Roots, so it's a, uh, it's, it's going to be a network and also some events for undergraduate and master's students and to help inform and empower black students um, to carry on in, in, in um, research and academic careers. And we launched our first event um, at the beginning of September and our first event on the 19th of November. And we launched it on the Sunday and it sold out in 24 hours. So I think the shock of that is that I knew there was an issue and like it's obvious there's an issue, but how 
upsetting and how frustrating people of colour in, in this respect, black students are. If, if we haven't even hit the like touched the surface yet. There are so many people out there that just don't know how to navigate these elite institutions, and that's what we've marketed our event as. And we've got a waiting list. We only, we only had seventy places for our first event. We've got um, Lisa Palmer, uh, Jason Arday, um, April Louise Pennon, and Adam. Um, Goldsmiths come in, and so they're all going to be speaking about their experience and giving advice. We have 70 places, sorry, and we've got 150 people on our waiting list. So, that so the extent to the inequality in higher education like, this is why Dom's research is so important. We haven't even touched the sides, I don't think, yet. Okay, um, so I would say maybe not shocking, but very clear things. Uh, on the bad side, um, from qualitative research, I had around, uh, around 250 respondents to the survey, uh, students both white and black, uh, postgraduate students. And I asked about their parents' education, about their parents' uh, uh, job, whether it was professional requiring degree, or whether it was not professional, meaning not requiring degree. And so there was an even split between BME and white students in terms of them having or not having parents with education. So, more or less, both samples had 50-50 uh, parents with education and without education. But it was a very interesting pattern whereby out of those, those parents who did not have higher education, there was uh, about 20% of them. Um, so now we're looking down to small numbers because now that's just like 28 people, right? But out of the, out of the people who did not have higher education, 20% of them had a professional job, despite not having the, uh, the degree to get into that job, right? And that was 28 people. Of these 28 people, 27 were white. So what does it say to me? It says that if you've got a qualification, you will have, get a professional job. So if you're a BME student, you will get a job if you've got a qualification. But if you're white, you might still get the job without the qualification. So, so meritocracy is kind of working against students of color, not uh, not for them really, because it, it is it is a, a barrier rather than, an, than also an enabler. You'll get it if you got the degree, but white people will we're, we're more likely to give white people the position without them meeting the criteria. So that was very clear statistic. It was the bad side. On the good side, I would say, so the students that I talked to in my interviews, they were research students mostly at elite or research intensive universities. So from looking from the outside, they were very successful students. And they had amazing set of skills, or capitals as I call it, uh, using Bourdieu, um, to navigate the system, to, uh, to have aspirations despite the lack of hope, to, to know how to play the system. Um, and so on, and amazing supporters, and so on. So they, they knew how to utilize it, they were really, really proactive. So their success was thanks to them, not thanks to the institution, okay? Uh, but what I'd like to see is institutions taking on this labor to become more successful for students rather than students fighting against this. So how do you um, address the changing gatekeepers to 
PhD funding to get more people of colour into the academy or into postgraduate research? Um, so I think that's a really good question and definitely one which um, myself and my friend Paulette at Leading Roots we're trying to tackle head on. Um, first of all, I don't think, I, I know what you're saying and I, I know a lot of academics that are, that are big time in the game and feel like they are completely powerless with this, but I do think that some um, academics still have the ability to use their network. So you might not be able to get the funding for that individual, but you might be able to say, okay, it's not going to work at this, at this institution with me, but I can tell you that there is this institution and this academic that are doing that. Manchester University try there that is what I think is missing from the conversation as we get into this new era where so much control is being taken from you um, I, I completely agree the way we are measuring um, success is just it's it's so it's racist it is racist because of all the things that we've spoken about of who's more likely to get those first who's more likely to have all those qualifications post even undergraduate is more likely to be your white middle class students we can't we, we can't tell what one of the problems we're having is we can't tell black students that you can you can get the funding you can do this you can do that if these places aren't changing the way they operate so i totally agree with you and um, we are trying to get into the room with some of these doctoral training programs but what i think with what with the tiny cultural capital with regards to PhD funding that academics do have, I still think there are things that can, that you can do, um, even if that means, yeah, a combination of encouragement, but also look at this place, look at this institution, like there are some institutions which still have pots of money, some institutions that do, and it's about tapping those at this stage. <laughs> I just think like, from my perspective, like doing this process, it's exhausting, man. I just get tired. And I think to myself, come on, guys, just give me a break. Like, I'm always, I'm always having to prove myself. Mm. I don't want to have to prove myself. I'm just as capable as you. But I just need the opportunity. I'm not asking for a free go, the opportunity, just like everyone else. But go through all these processes and find out all these things. It's, it seems I'm always trying to like, find a, like a secret club. A secret, it's, it's exhausting. I don't have to prove myself anymore. I read a lot of books, talk to a lot of people. What else do you like? I don't have to do this anymore. That, that's what that's what upsets me. The whole process. It's like this new the, the way funding has changed, particularly even in the last five years. It's like the ultimate change of goalposts as well. Like they're just moving them and moving it. And when you move it, you just bring it away from the marginalised people even more. So yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. So what I would say is um, I don't have the expertise to talk about right now what's happening. I can tell you from my research it was done in 2014 and 16, what was the landscape there. And when the decisions were sitting uh, with faculty, it wasn't always very perfect either, because there's no transparency. And what was happening is the, someone with some pot of money would say, come do a PhD with me, right? Who would they address? They would address mostly white students. So that was a big issue there. So there is a potential that the, the more centralized system will do something. But the problem then is, you said one size fits all, we know that this is wrong. And whose size is it? It's the white people's size, right? With those qualifications that, that recognize that. And we know that it doesn't fit anyone really because if you look at 
all the metrics in the higher education, like the ones that uh, higher education funding has used to acquire, and assess metrics, in, um, national student survey, they disadvantage certain institutions and they look very bad in rankings of NSS, which was never designed to be a ranking. But specialist institutions like uh, Ravensbourne, for example, which is a specialist uh, fashion uh, arts institution, in NSS they don't do very well. Like you go there and you talk to the students and they are an amazing institution. But their, their responses to NSS just doesn't meet the criteria of NSS. Doesn't mean that they're bad. So that one size fits all is a really bad approach. Um, but at least it's transparent. So if we if we know if we now know how we discriminate against, okay, so we can start tackling this. If before we had no transparency, then we couldn't start tackling that at all. So it's not an ideal step, but it might be a, a thing clarifying the problems at least. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, well then, I hope you join me in saying thank you to Tiso, Chantal and Dawn for coming along and speaking to us today.